0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Rick in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 1, The History of Surrogate Warfare. It was a warm day in late May 1294 BC when Pharaoh Ramses II and his vanguard reached the Hittite city of Kadesh on the Orontes River in what is today Syria, after a month's march through Canaan along the Mediterranean coast. The enemy Hittite forces had taken position behind the city and awaited the Egyptians, spies having informed the Hittite king Muwatali II days before about the Pharaoh's advance. When the egyptian vanguard surrounding the pharaoh started to erect its camp the hittites attacked knowing that two major components of the egyptian army had not yet arrived encircled by hittite chariots and taken by surprise the young pharaoh had to fight for his life hoping that his reinforcements would arrive before it was too late He was able to repel his attackers through the help of the Nurn, mercenaries from Canaan who accompanied the Egyptians. The Nurn, as Egyptian auxiliaries, saved the day for the pharaoh, who commenced his counterattack as soon as reinforcements arrived the next day. Thousands of Egyptian chariots, supported by Numidian mercenaries on horseback, were able to push the Hittites back to the eastern banks of the Orontes River. Although Ramses was unable to capture Kadesh after days of fighting, the young pharaoh consolidated his leadership as a military commander on a par with the leader of the other superpower of the time, the Hittite Empire. If it had not been for the force multipliers from the Maghreb and Levant providing him with niche capabilities and capacity, Ramses might have either not returned to Egypt alive or only as a weak pharaoh who had lost the Levant for the Egyptians. On March 1, 1579, the Golden Hind, the galleon of English privateer Sir Francis Drake caught up with the Spanish galleon Nuestra Señora de la Concepcion, nicknamed the Cacafuego. For more than a month, Drake had chased the Cacafuego up the South American Pacific coast. When the Golden Hind appeared alongside it, the Spanish commander, San Juan de Antón, was determined not to surrender his treasures to the English. It was thus not surprising that when Drake shouted to the Spaniards, you must strike your sails in the name of the Queen of England, Antone refused to cooperate. The golden hind opened fire, one of the masts of the Cacafuego was splintered, and the Spanish commander was wounded. Drake's men swarmed aboard, seizing the greatest prize of any Englishman had ever captured— 80 pounds of gold, 13 chests of silver coins, and 26 tons of silver bars, jewels, and other valuables. The whole annual yield of gold and silver from the Spanish colonies in South America. When Drake returned to Plymouth a year later after circumnavigating the globe, he was able to present Queen Elizabeth I with spoils amounting to half the ordinary annual revenue of the crown. Despite the queen's diplomatic efforts to reconcile with the Spanish empire, Drake, equipped with a royal letter of marque, had proved to be her most effective weapon to annoy the king of Spain in the Indies. Sir Francis Drake, a licensed pirate preying on Spanish galleons in the colonies, had provided Queen Elizabeth I with a capability otherwise not had and a degree of plausible deniability in the competition for supremacy of the seas. Ultimately, it was privateers such as Drake who paved the way for the rise of England and later Britain as a colonial superpower amidst the demise of the Spanish Empire. In late 2009, November of 2009, surveillance cameras in the Iranian enrichment facility of Natanz, installed by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, observed how workers were carrying out, crate by crate, broken centrifuges from from an underground laboratory. By late spring of 2010, more than 10% of all centrifuges had to be replaced. All that after the Siemens made industrial controller software had altered, without the operators noticing it, the centrifuges rotor speeds, inducing excessive vibrations and distortions that would ultimately destroy them. At the height of the international communities, dispute with Iran over its nuclear program, Natanz and some other Iranian nuclear facilities had been attacked by a cyber worm, a malware meticulously designed to infect the Windows-based controller systems in use to regulate the physical processes in a nuclear laboratory. The worm, called Stuxnet, was introduced through a USB flash drive and not over the internet. It was not controlled from overseas but was a standalone malware that, instead of stealing digital data, corrupted the command system so as to physically destroy centrifuges that could have well been classified as military targets, most notably by the U.S. and Israel. Stuxnet is believed to be the work of a joint U.S.-Israeli effort. To slow down the Iranian nuclear program. It arguably allowed both powers to strike right at the heart of Iran's most protected nuclear facility under the cloak of plausible deniability and without mobilizing military capacity that would have generated immense political and financial costs. As these examples illustrate, surrogate warfare is far from being exclusively a 21st century phenomenon. The externalization of the burden of warfare is as old as warfare itself, and as diverse in character as the surrogates that bear the burden. Surrogates are not just the enemy's enemy, as proxies are, and they are not just some militias or revolutionaries who support the same ideological causes as the patron. The idea of authorizing a substitute to incur the costs of war partially or wholly in the name of a patron is something more fundamental than the Cold War concept of warfare by proxy. In the history of warfare, surrogates were auxiliaries, privateers, mercenaries, rebels, insurgents, or private companies. Only later did they include terrorist organizations, militias, other states, and ultimately technological platforms. All three cases give distinct examples of surrogates that within their context have allowed patrons to thrive despite the absence of indigenous state-owned capacity and capability to sustain the operational burden of warfare. The impact of operational surrogates has had, though, was strategic. Pharaoh Ramses II was able to galvanize his power vis-a-vis his main adversary, granting him the kudos required to work on a peace agreement later on. Queen Elizabeth I was able to disrupt the Spaniards' line of communication, eventually turning the tide in the naval balance of power between England and Spain. And the developers of Stuxnet had a clear objective to disrupt operations within Iran's nuclear facilities, an objective that was achieved as Iran had to divert time and resources to restoring those facilities. This chapter is going to give an introduction into the complexity and diversity of surrogate warfare through the ages, discussing how the concept has evolved from early antiquity to the surrogate wars of the 21st century. Understanding how patrons have used surrogates in its various forms throughout history provides the historical contextualization of the phenomenon from the operational auxiliaries of ancient Rome to the technical surrogates employed by 21st century powers. Forms of Surrogates The earliest form of surrogacy has been the partial delegation of the operational burden of warfare to auxiliaries and force multipliers embedded into the overall strategic framework of the patron. That is to say that auxiliaries, common forces with niche capabilities, were hired for pay by the ancient empires to supplement existing skill and capacity with special abilities. Slingers from the Balearic Islands, cavalry forces from North Africa, archers from Crete, and Phoenician seafarers with special naval skills were employed by the empires of ancient Egypt, Alexander the Great, Carthage, and ancient Rome to achieve an operational advantage using skill sets and troop numbers that the empires could not have generated themselves. Strategically, the empires of ancient times would rely on traditional proxies to administer their vast territories or lead wars in territories that were not either accessible to them or in which their own troops would be uncomfortable operating. Thucydides describes how during the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century BC, the two protagonists, Athens and Sparta, relied on other cities as proxies to support their cause. Rome would use the Gassanids in the Levant in the 6th century war against the Persians to fight the local Persian proxy, the Lachmids, as both empires lacked the capacity to do so using their own troops, particularly Rome, as an empire in decline. To disrupt Persian trade in the Red Sea, Roman Empire Justinian later relied on the Ethiopians to conduct raids against Persian seafarers. In the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance, patrons would substitute operational burdens of warfare almost entirely to mercenaries and private companies that provided military services to their clients in exchange for money. In a time when feudal armies were the cheap and omnipresent solution for putting boots on the ground in Europe, the rich merchant cities of Italy... Lacking both the capacity and capability to raise large armed forces from their midst found new means to transform their commercial wealth into military power. Venice's use of specialist rowers during the Crusades of the 11th century and later the large-scale delegation of warfare services to the condottieri demonstrated how professional arms for hire were militarily superior to the unprofessional armed vassals of northern Europe. By the 14th century, Venice, Florence, and Genoa had almost entirely externalized the strategic and operational burden of war to free companies holding thousands of men under arms. These professional mercenaries were very much sought after because they had unique experience and expertise in the conduct of war, making them a powerful tool in the wars between Renaissance Italy and the medieval state system that prevailed north of the Alps. For instance, Swiss mercenaries had a virtual monopoly on pike-armed military service throughout late medieval Europe. Their unique skill of massing attacks in deep columns with pikes and halberds, as well as the ease of contracting them directly through their local Swiss canton, was very appealing to the foreign rulers of the time. By the Thirty Years' War, as warfare had become more technologized, requiring more niche capabilities, warfare in Europe had developed into an endeavor dominated by commercial agents acting as the strategic and operational surrogates for the great powers of the time. Albrecht von Wallenstein had become one of the richest men in the world at the beginning of the 17th century by offering entire armies to his patron, the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. From his estates in Bohemia, Wallenstein equipped, trained, and led up to 100,000 men to victory. His operational and commercial effectiveness was unique at the time. In parallel, the Spanish and English empires would commission privateers private individuals commanding ships and crews to carry out hostilities on sea against their patrons' enemies. Sir Francis Drake, described above, may have just been the most infamous in providing his patron with capacity and niche capability across an increasingly global battlefield where empires clashed. In the modern age, amid the publicization and nationalization of the means of war, surrogate warfare took new forms. In dire need for troops to administer and control large empires spanning the globe, the rather small metropolitan states of France and Britain had no choice but to externalize the burden of colonial warfare to local indigenous forces. Often following a policy of divide and rule, local militias and minority groups were empowered through Western arms and training to protect colonial interests overseas. The superpower of the time, Britain, had mastered surrogate warfare like no one else. Colonial volunteers were raised locally through companies such as the British East India Company. Mercenary auxiliaries were sourced from the state of Hesse during the American War of Independence, and force multipliers were found in the Spanish guerrillas during the Peninsular War in 1908. While the Hessian contract soldiers were embedded with the regular colonial troops in North America, the guerrillas in Spain fighting the French were largely independent from British command and leadership. A hundred years later, Britain perfected the use of insurgents as surrogates in a campaign led by T.E. Lawrence in the Arabian Peninsula against the Ottoman Empire. Although operating widely independent from the British regulars in the Levant, the Arab tribes achieved high degrees of strategic synergy with their patrons in uniform. In the 20th century, Cold warfare was dominated by reliance on proxies, allowing state and non-state patrons to achieve military objectives at unprecedented levels of deniability. Ideology-conforming militias and insurgents were trained and equipped to ensure that the ideological adversary would not gain ground in a perceived zero-sum game. The most prominent examples of surrogate wars of the time were the proxy wars of Vietnam and Afghanistan, the former directed by the Soviets using the Viet Cong guerrillas and North Vietnamese regulars to undermine the US war effort to preserve the South Vietnamese government, and the latter by the Americans employing the Mujahideen as surrogates to wear down the Soviet capabilities at the Hindu Kush. Apart from the obvious examples of state-on-non-state surrogacy, the Cold War also gave birth to a more discreet and indirect form of strategic surrogacy, the externalization of the entire strategic and operational burden of warfare through foreign military assistance. The delivery of military aid was the most effective means for the superpowers to allow their allies to fight their wars locally, thereby relieving themselves of the capacity and tense effort to maintain sufficient levels of deterrence everywhere at any given time. The Cold War in the Middle East was almost exclusively fought through surrogates, Israel and later Egypt being the most prominent US surrogates, while most of the other Arab states in North Africa and the Levant were clients of the Soviet Union. It was also in the Middle East where surrogate warfare through terrorist organizations became a policy of externalizing the burden of warfare, mostly by rogue regimes. Although the definition of a terrorist remains highly controversial and subjective, the systematic sponsoring of freedom fighters employing terrorist tactics to achieve ideopolitical goals had developed into an effort to disrupt public law and order in its immediate neighborhood and overseas. Arab states have supported Palestinian groups using terrorism against the state of Israel at home and overseas. Starting with the sponsorship of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, Muammar Gaddafi's Libya expanded its surrogate wars against a variety of declared adversaries in the region, in the West, and in Africa. Since the 1970s, the dictator Gaddafi used his petrodollars to finance leftist and socialist groups across the globe, most famously the Provisional Irish Republican Army. It was also during that time that terrorist organizations became each other's surrogate. The relationship between the Bad- Badir-Meinhof clique of the Red Army Faction, RAF, in West Germany and Palestinian terrorist organizations was one of cooperation, allowing particularly that particularly the RAF in the 1970s to rely on Palestinian surrogates to exercise pressure on the West German government as the RAF's main antagonist. The hijacking of the Lufthansa plane Landshut in Mogadishu in 1977 by terrorists from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine primarily served the objective of pressuring the West German government to release imprisoned RAF leaders. In the post-Cold War era, new forms of surrogacy appeared amid the Revolution in Military Affairs, RMA. RMA proponents believe that the new technologies deriving from the computerization of the battlefield in the late 20th century brought with it an irreversible and fundamental transformation in the conduct of warfare. In addition, the renewed reliance on contractors employed through PMSCs made the battlefields of the 1990s and 2000s look profoundly different from those of the Cold War. The leading powers of the international systems have accumulated unprecedented levels of wealth that they could invest in maintaining highly advanced technological armies supported by specialist contract soldiers who assist the Trinitarian citizen soldier to achieve operational effectiveness and precision in executing military core functions. High technology from the latest generation air power to robotics to advanced information systems has put the soldier into a highly complex grid of network-centric operations. The uniformed soldier of the 21st century is able to externalize tactical and operational burdens of warfare to technological platforms, transforming him from a shooter into a mere spotter, the arguably most existential change of identity for the infantryman in the history of warfare. Though in its infancy, the emerging fusion between soldiers and technology will slowly give rise to a new class of soldiers, cyborgs, that might in the future act as standalone weapons systems. The use of offensive cyber operations against military and civilian targets is the current evolutionary step in the use of technology to substitute for the patrons' boots on the ground. It ultimately removes the kinetic military force from the equation of warfare. Regardless of the benignity of the means employed, the effects of offensive cyber operation on the target are just as disruptive as the kinetic effects that have been generated by the traditional use of force for millennia. Despite the absence or because of the absence of uniformed citizen soldiers from the equation, the cyber domain has become the nonviolent and non-kinetic force multiplier as it deceptively exerts non-physical force through some of its efforts can very much have physical consequences. While the most developed states invest extensively in technology as a surrogate, developing states continue to invest in militia groups to act as their substitute. State-sponsored or government-sponsored militias have become the means for authoritarian regimes in multi-sectarian states to maintain control over fractured societies, what statutory public security providers refuse to do, sectarian militias might be willing to do. Authoritarians are able to externalize the horrors of ethnic cleansing, war crimes, and genocide against its own citizens to non-statutory surrogates willingly executing the sectarian agendas of their patrons. During the Rwandan genocide in 1994, the Hutu government relied on the Interahamwe, a Hutu militia, to expel or kill hundreds of thousands of countrymen of the Tutsi ethnic group. In the Darfur crisis of 2003, the Sudanese government supported the Janjaweed as an Arab tribal militia to cleanse Darfur of black African Sudanese. In the Middle East, the former Iraqi president Nouri al-Maliki externalized the burden of ethnic cleansing of Sunni neighborhoods to Shia death squads since 2006, militias that were informally linked to Iraqi government ministries. Also, the Shabia, an Alawite militia in Syria, has grown into a powerful sectarian surrogate of the Assad regime in the Syrian civil war since 2011, cleansing, killing, and torturing sectarian outgroups. The use of the Houthis by Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president of Yemen, was arguably a form of domestic surrogate warfare with the aim of undermining the legitimacy of his successor, Abdrabah Mansur Hadi categories of surrogacy. In addition to the various forms of surrogates employed by patrons, the nature of patron-surrogate relations can be categorized based on the closeness of the interaction between the patron and the surrogate. The variation in the form of surrogacy arises from the degree by which synergy between the strategic or operational command of the patron and the executive forces of the surrogate is direct, indirect, or coincidental the higher the degree of cooperation between patron and surrogate, the more the former has control over surrogate operations. Conversely, the more the surrogate retains control over his own operations, the less direct patron-surrogate relationships are. In some cases, neither direct nor indirect links between the patient and surrogate exist, making the form of of surrogacy entirely coincidental. Before the 20th century, direct surrogacy had been more common owing to the fact that deniability or discretion have not been main motivating factors for patrons to delegate the burden of warfare to substitutes. The auxiliaries of antiquity that constitute the earliest forms of surrogacy were direct agents of the patron embedded into their command and control system, and thereby subject to the strategic guidance and leadership of the patron operational surrogates who are not left with the discretion of either design to either design or execute their operations tend to be direct surrogates of the patron. Only retaining degrees of tactical autonomy, direct surrogates are usually employed to enhance the effectiveness of already existing capability in the theater. Thus, direct surrogates act as force multipliers within an already existing strategic and operational framework. The Numidian cavalry employed by Ramses II in the Battle of Kadesh and the employment of local volunteers by the British Empire to augment its colonial troop levels are as much examples of direct surrogacy as Nazi Germany's creation of the Waffen SS, Foreign Legion, during World War II. In the externalization of the burden of warfare to manned and unmanned air power in the 21st century, In the latter case, particularly when unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, are being used as the soldier's force multiplier, the direct surrogate can be a mere tactical surrogate under complete control of the soldier, enhancing his tactical abilities on the battlefield and providing intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, or firepower. However, direct surrogacy can also involve strategic surrogates, as in the case of the employment of UAVs for strategic purposes or in cases when the patron creates, trains and funds a surrogate to act as a substitute. The example here could be the US government's employment of Cuban volunteers in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, the relationship between Iran and Hezbollah since the 1980s, or the Russian use of private military contractors in Ukraine and Syria. In all these cases, the lines between strategic and operational surrogacy become blurry. The patron retains significant strategic leverage over the surrogate, but allows him to plan and execute operations more or less autonomously within a strategic or ideological framework of the patron. In the Bay of Pigs disaster, whereby the CIA had trained to topple Fidel Castro's communist government, in Cuba by training and equipping a paramilitary invasion force consisting of Cuban exiles, the surrogate was provided with all the necessary support prior to the invasion, but was left with relative autonomy during the operation on Cuban soil itself. Hezbollah's operation since the 1980s show similar traits. The IRGC helped to build the Shia militia in southern Lebanon, but despite maintaining strategic control, allowed the Party of God to operate as it saw fit. The same is true for Russia's surrogate troops on the ground in Ukraine and Syria. While strategic guidance comes from the Kremlin, the private military companies are left with operational freedom. In all three cases, the patron-surrogate relationship was direct, although cooperation and control was limited to the strategic level, providing the patron with the necessary amount of discretion and deniability and the surrogate with a certain autonomy of movement. As history has shown, the proximity of these, patient, of these patron-surrogate relationships is far from static. They are highly dynamic and can turn upside down. After the Duke of Milan, Maximilian Sforza, hired Swiss mercenaries to defend Milan and beat the French army of Louis XII at the Battle of Navarra in 1513. The Swiss then took control of the duchy while maintaining Sforza in power as a puppet. The surrogate had become the patron. Indirect surrogacy has been on the rise since the 20th century. The traditional proxy war between the East-West conflict after 1945 is a stereotypical example of indirect surrogacy. Unlike direct surrogates, indirect surrogates do not supplement but rather substitute for the patron's capabilities. Here patrons externalize almost the entire burden of war—political, financial, and military—to a surrogate whose allegiance to the common cause is flexible. The reason is that the more distant the strategic objectives between patron and surrogate, the less likely the patron-surrogate relationship remains mutually beneficial in the long run. Compatibility and complementarity of strategic interests does not equal strategic synergy. Although indirect strategic surrogates were used throughout history, it was the nature of the international system in the 20th century that made indirect forms of surrogacy particularly attractive. The Spartans' reliance on the oligarchs of Corfu in the fight against the Athenian alliance in the Peloponnesian War, Spain's support for Irish rebels in the Nine Years' War with Britain in the late 16th century, and Britain's contracting with the British East India Company to colonize the Indian subcontinent since the early 1600s are historic examples of the indirect externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates over whom the patron had little control. In the 20th century, as deniability, legitimacy, and ideology became even more important factors in warfare, indirect surrogate warfare provided a silver bullet to not only supplement capacity and capability to duties, but also to externalize the entire burden of warfare to proxies that would operate with limited strategic control and oversight. Thus, apart from operations, that is, the preparation and conduct of military action, in cases of indirect surrogacy, the strategic planning of war is also being outsourced to a surrogate who might receive aid, training, and equipment, but does not necessarily remain receptive to patron control. Here, loyalty is often a product of the ancient Sanskrit principle of, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That is to say, as long as both patron and surrogate have overlapping strategic interests, cooperation could be mutually beneficial. Nonetheless, because of the lack of direct proximity between sponsor and substitute and the lack of direct control over surrogate strategy and operations, indirect surrogacy is often a temporary phenomenon. During the Cold War, most of the proxy wars were fought using indirect surrogates, forces whose primary strategic objectives may have been similar to those of the patron, while the ways to achieve them were often different as interests and motivations evolved the strategic consensus between patron and surrogate often evolved as well undermining the sustainability of the relationship the few exceptions might have been the superpowers' state proxies outside the military alliances of the Warsaw Pact and NATO NATO these state proxies such as Cuba itself a proxy of the Soviet Union and Russia and Israel, the U.S. proxy in the Middle East, and even North Korea, the Chinese proxy on the Korean peninsula, have remained state proxies for the patrons for decades. Indirect surrogates tend to be parties to a conflict before the patron gets involved. The patron merely exploits an already existing movement or state that holds stakes in a conflict. The surrogate is thus not a creation of the patron. Surrogate warfare in the 20th century provides a whole host of examples even outside the bipolar struggle for ideological supremacy. When the U.S. intervened in Iran in 1953 to restore the power of Shah Mohammad Reza during Operation Ajax, America could rely already on a surrogate on the ground—Iranian royalists in the military who were exploited by and supported with millions of dollars from the CIA. In the North Yemen Civil War starting in 1962, Saudi Arabia, interested in maintaining control of the small country south of its border, supported the royalists who were already fighting against the Arab nationalist revolution incited by Egypt. Despite their mostly Zaidi Shia religious background, the royalists were guaranteed money from the Wahhabi Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which was eager not to lose its feudal state Yemen to the Nasserist seculars from Egypt. Saudi Arabia's support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan more than a decade later followed a similar pattern. Perceiving itself as a defender of Sunni Islam, Saudi Arabia wanted to repel the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, seen as an ideological crusade by secular communists encroaching on an Islamic country. Without a noteworthy military of its own, Saudi used its petrodollars to support an already existing resistance movement, the Mujahideen, against Soviet aggression. Another example of indirect surrogate warfare outside of East-West Divide was Iran's support for the Iraqi Dawa Party during the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s. The party had been founded in the 1950s as a Shia Islamist movement and maintained extensive networks in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, networks that Iran exploited to carry out bombings against Iraqi regime targets over both inside and outside the country. In the global war on terror, the U.S. has relied on a range of indirect strategic surrogates such as Pakistani, Yemeni, and Somali government forces trained and equipped by the U.S. to crack down on terrorist organizations. The CIA also used an estimated 50 prisons in 28 countries, mostly in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, as black sites to illegally detain prisoners. In the war in Syria, the U.S. has trained and equipped rebel forces fighting both the Assad regime and ISIS. In general, the war in Syria has witnessed the development of a variety of different, complex, indirect patron-surrogate relationships. The U.S. has relied on the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, to deliver military aid to the opposition before providing more open support to the Free Syrian Army. Saudi Arabia and Qatar have had their own indirect surrogate partnerships on the ground, the latter supporting Wahhabi organizations such as Jaish al Islam, with the former supporting organizations close to the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. Even non-state actors such as Al-Qaeda got involved in Syria through Jabhat al-Nusra, a direct strategic surrogate at first that increasingly developed into an indirect surrogate, planning and executing operations without effective control from the core of Al-Qaeda. By 2016, Jabhat al-Nusra had severed its ties with the terrorist organization, rebranding itself Jabhat Fateh al-Sham and later Hayat Tahir al-Sham in January of 2017. In In Africa, surrogate wars have also been on the rise as state sponsors employ existing liberation and rebel movements operating within an opponent's territory. Uganda's support for the Movement de Liberation to Congo, MLC, and Rwanda's backing of the Rassemblement Congolais pour la Democratie, RCD, during the Second Congo War in 1998 resulted in a proxy war in Central Africa between the two indigenous Congolese movements that were supported by state sponsors across the border. At this point, it is important to point out that the proximity between patron and surrogate is a dynamic one, allowing indirect surrogates to develop into direct ones and vice versa. The most obvious example for the intrinsic dynamic of surrogate warfare is the US intervention in South Vietnam, which escalated from an indirect strategic support for the South Vietnamese military under President John F. Kennedy in 1963 to a large-scale US military intervention supported by South Vietnamese operational surrogates in 1965 under President Lyndon B. Johnson. The same was true in 2014 when the U.S. had to realize that it could not win the war against ISIS by merely relying on the forces loyal to Iraq's Maliki regime as indirect strategic surrogates. Since November 2014, consecutive U.S. administrations had to repeatedly augment troop levels in Iraq to help the Iraqi security sector cope with the jihadist onslaught. The, mere, the direct coordination of anti-ISIS operations between Washington and Baghdad meant that the Iraqi security forces developed into a more direct U.S. surrogate. The direct nature of this relationship between became obvious during the battles to retake Fallujah, Ramadi, and Mosul from ISIS, where U.S. SOF forces not only trained Iraqi forces but embedded with them to advise on matters of operational planning, synergy, and delivery of close air support Finally, surrogacy could also be entirely coincidental, that is, lacking any direct lines of communication between patron and surrogate. Although rare, in the post-Cold War era in which strategic and operational environments become increasingly complex, burden sharing between unlikely partners amounts to the most indirect form of surrogacy. In the Syrian civil war, Hezbollah coincidentally advances the interests of the archenemy Israel by guaranteeing the survival of the Assad regime against Salafi jihadists, who for Israel are arguably the worst of two evils. In the war on ISIS, the US could rely on the strategic overlap of interests with Iran and Russia, two powers that in the international arena have been Washington's most passionate antagonists in the recent years. Despite the absence of direct correspondence or coordination, the U.S. Air Force indirectly provided air cover for Iranian ground troops in Iraq in 2014 and Russian ground troops in Syria in 2016. Iran and Russia thereby functioned as U.S. force multipliers, providing ground components to a U.S. air power only campaign. While this form of coincidental externalization of the burden of warfare is mutually beneficial, it does not guarantee any control of one party over the other. Although the US and Russia actively try to deconflict their air power op- operations over Syria, both operate autonomously without any leverage over or accountability to each other as the multiple failed attempts of establishing a ceasefire in Aleppo in 2016 have demonstrated. The lines between patron and surrogate become blurry as both parties to the conflict benefit from the commitment and input of the other. Conclusion: As this chapter demonstrates, the use of surrogates in their various forms is hardly a new phenomenon of the 21st century. In fact, surrogate warfare is as old as the mercenary profession, arguably the oldest profession in the world. Men specializing in the niche capability of warfare might well be the earliest division of labor in the first civilizations of mankind. As Peter Singer writes, quote, the constant of conflict in human society meant that specialists in it could gain their livelihoods by marketing their relative efficiency in the use of force. They could do so locally or search elsewhere for better markets. The consequences that the foreign soldier hired for pay is an almost ubiquitous type in the entire social and political history or organized warfare. End quote. The Cretan slingers, the Syracusan hoplites, and Thessalian cavalry used by the Persians in their civil war in the 4th century BC are as much a testimony to this, traditional, to this tradition as Alexander the Great's use of Phoenicians for his navy a century later, or, Ro- or Rome's use of Balearic slingers and German tribesmen as ex- auxiliaries in the conquests en route to building an empire. The concept of the state's monopolization of the means and execution of violence is just as historically anomalistic as the modern idea of the sovereignty and territoriality of the nation-state. Up until the 1700s, 25-60% to 60% of all land armies in Europe were composed of foreign auxiliaries. Hence, from today's point of view, the externalization of the operational burden of warfare to auxiliaries is an anachronism, a return to an era where the socio-political underpinnings of warfare were fundamentally different from those espoused by classical thinkers such as Karl von Clausewitz, Helmuth von Moltke, the Elder, and Basil Littleheart. That being said, even in the post-18th century world, the use of auxiliaries had not completely ceased. Even in the era of people's wars and vibrant nationalism, force multiplication through surrogates was common. Examples range from auxiliaries in the British Navy over local surrogates for the protection of colonial interests to the French Foreign Legion. The externalization of strategic burdens of warfare to substitutes is just as common in the history of warfare. The famous proverb of my enemy's enemy is my friend derives from the Arthashastra a Sanskrit treatise on statecraft from the 4th century BC, which reads, The king who is situated anywhere immediately on the circumference of the conqueror's territory is termed the enemy. The king who is likewise situated close to the enemy, but separated from the conqueror only by the enemy, is termed the friend of the conqueror. The Arthashastra thereby in, quote, the Arthashastra thereby inspired a maxim for the cooperation with or employment of forces that are coincidentally or deliberately supporting one's own cause in an effort to minimize one's own costs. Niccolo Machiavelli advises in his 16th century magnum opus The Prince that a strong ruler is supporting the less powerful without increasing their strength, undercutting the strong. He writes further that once the populace has taken up arms there will always be a foreign power eager to come to its aid. Accordingly, there is a realization that the externalization of the burden of warfare to local surrogates is an effective means to undermine the strength of the enemy without directly engaging in war, a classic case of surrogate warfare. The risks of Volksbewaffnung, or people in arms, is something that Clausewitz outlines in chapter 26 of book 6 of On War leading a war through local surrogates, rising up against an established order could be an effective means for the enemy to undermine the integrity of a state, thereby picking up on Machiavelli's latter point. Sun Tzu's maxim of, he will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces, is considered as a valuable insight to understanding surrogate warfare, and the role of it in SOF. Hence, the externalization of the burden of warfare has been common practice throughout military history even if the pretext in the context has changed. It is the context of globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized war in the twenty first century that adds another layer to the millennia old practice of externalizing the burden of war. In an effort to understand surrogate warfare as a postmodern socio political phenomenon, the next chapter defines the context of neo-Trinitarian war in contrast to the traditional Trinitarian context of warfare prevalent in modern literature.